Um, anyway, so we can clear that up ahead of time. So when we last left, anyway, uh, David is fleeing from Absalom. Absalom uh, is taking advice from his two advisors. Uh, his loyal advisor is telling him, let me take 12,000 troops, go after At, uh, David right away, and I'll take him and capture him alone, bring him back. You can deal with David, and the people will return to you, and everything will be good. Absalom says, that's great advice. What do you say, Hushai, who is David's spy? And David's spy, Hushai, says, well, that's bad advice. You don't want to do that. What you want to do is gather everybody from all over Israel, get a big army, because David is tenacious. He's a mighty warrior, and if you follow this advice, uh, what's going to happen is he's going to fight like a mama bear when her cubs are taken from her, and your people are going to flee, and... David's going to have the victory. So you get, you get the whole army together, and you come after him yourself, and you'll get the victory, and that, that's going to work better. So Absalom says, that's better advice. So David, or Absalom's loyal advisor realizes that he's been defeated in the advice arena. Uh, I think he realizes Absalom's also going to get defeated here in the end, and that he's going to have to face David's wrath, and so he goes and kills himself. And Absalom takes the bad advice, and now he's going out to meet David on the field of battle. And that's where we sit at chapter 18 here. And we will see how this turns out here. And remember that when we left last, uh, the writer of Second Samuel tells us that Absalom followed the bad advice because God was purposing that he was going to cause Absalom's defeat and was going to reinstate David as king of Israel. So uh, this is all in God's purpose as God is moving kingdoms and changing kings around here. Uh, Even though God is doing a lot of this to... uh, doing this to... uh, uh, because of what David's sin, because of... uh, I can't think of the word here because my brain is fried. Um, that God is punishing David for what he did, that God still has a purpose and he's working it out for his glory and for his honor and going to reinstate David as king. So God's still working things out for his will here. We're going to see that happen. So we're in chapter 18 this morning. Let's go ahead and we'll get started with that. Um, And I'm going to ask Ted to open us up in prayer. So 2 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. Do I have a reader who would like to start this morning? Ed, your hand went up very quick this morning. Let's let you start. And David numbered the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of and the son of Uriah, Joab's brother, and one third under the hand of Atai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you 
himself. But the people answered, You shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die, will they care about us? But you are worthy ten thousands of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. Then the king said to them, Whatever seemed best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. So David, first of all, he orders his troop for the battle here. He orders his troops. Yep. So he sets up commanders over his warriors. He's putting his troops in order. Yeah, and at this point it seems like he has more than just the 600 uh, mighty men that he started with. He seems to have a much larger group of people here because he set up captives over thousands and captives over hundreds. So if you say captives over thousands, it implies that he has multiple thousands to set captains over. Uh, so he's gathered much more people to him. Maybe there's a large discontented people with Absalom that don't like him, or maybe a lot of people are saying, we, we know what David's done, we're familiar with him, we like David as our king. And so he has people now fighting for him, and he has an army that's ready to fight on his side. And so now he's setting up an order of troops he's going to have fight for them. And as he said, out these captains over hundreds, the captains over thousands, he actually has enough that he can set three generals over his army. And a couple of these guys you're familiar with, Joab, Joab's been kind of David's supreme commander, his leader of his army the whole time, so he's been around. We know him. Uh, Abishai, he's Job's brother. He's been around also. Um, he's been in and out of the story. Um, both of them are nephews to David, so we're familiar with them. And then we see the third general is uh, Itay, the Gittite. And now this guy was the guy that a couple chapters ago, remember, as David's fleeing, he comes up to David and says, I'm going to go with you. And what does David say to him? Anybody remember what he said? Why should you go with me? You just got here. Yeah, he's the guy that just got here, right? He hasn't, he hasn't been with David that long. And David says, you're new here. Don't come with me. Go serve my son. You're not, you haven't been here long enough to, to flee with me. And he's like, no, where you go, I'm going. So he's gone from being the new guy to, hey, guess what, you're, you're my general now. He's apparently proved his loyalty to David at this point, that you know, you've, you've proven that you're going to stick with me, so much so that I'm going to make you one of my three generals over the army. So this guy, in a very short time, has proved his loyalty to David enough that David's going to trust him that, hey, you're going to be one of my leaders here. Um, so that's, that's a pretty good testimony on this guy's part, that he, he's hung around and he's proved himself to David in such a short time that David trusts him to say, hey, you get a third of the people and you're going to lead a large group of people here. Um, of all the people that David, you know, he had 600 guys that had been with him from before he was king, and of all of them, he picks out this guy who is brand new to the group and says, I want you to lead my people. So pretty interesting that that's one of the guys he picks out to be the general. Uh, now, David also has another idea. He says, and above all that, I'm going to go out and lead you guys in this battle. Yeah. Now, this makes some sense because David's a veteran 
of many, many wars. He's fought a lot. David is a military leader. It does make some sense that David would do this. However, the people come up with a pretty good argument, right? They argue against David leading. They say, if we flee, or if we lose, or if we die, they're not going to, Absalom's not going to care about us. He's coming for you. So if you're on the field exposed and, and we flee because we're overwhelmed or if he kills us off so that you're exposed, he's not going to care about us. He's, he's after you. So we're not going to leave you exposed to Absalom. You're better off remaining in the city where you're protected. Let us fight the battle for you. We'll protect you. And you stay safe because you're the trophy here. You're, the, you're what he's after. He doesn't care about the rest of us. And uh, you're worth more than 10,000 people here, David. We're not going to put you in harm's way. Let us us do the fighting in this case. Um, You know, to me, this this is kind of an interesting contrast as opposed to, you know, when uh, the time of Bathsheba, when the kings went out to battle, you know, it it kind of implies maybe David should have been out there. Now at this point, David's like, I should be out there. And the people are saying, oh, wait a second. No, in this case, you're not supposed to be out here. You, You should not be in the battle. You know, this is, you're the, you're the prime trophy at this point. Let's not put you exposed where you could get captured or killed. Okay, we're trying to restore your kingdom. We're not trying to get you killed by this guy. So you go back to the city. You remain safe. Let us fight this battle for you. And David, uh, David being the king, says, no, wait, I'm the king. I'm going to do what I want to. No, David says, okay, whatever seems best to you, I'll, I'll stay back. I see your point here. And so David doesn't argue with them too, ba- too badly about this. Uh, you know, he wants to lead the people, but he sees the wisdom maybe in what they're saying here that, okay, you have a point here. But David does make a request here, verse 5. Who would like to read? Miriam, go ahead. So David gives a command to spare Absalom. Maybe you can ask that back. So David commands his generals to deal gently with Absalom. Uh, my, my son's trying to kill me. Again, here I brought it up Nathan, not Nathan. David's saying this to uh, his generals. My son's trying to kill me. Deal gently with him. Um, so the idea was that David wanted no harm to come to Absalom. It, it seems like David was ready to forgive Absalom everything he's done to him. Um, you know, I, I think David understands mercy. David's earned a lot of mercy in his life from God. I think David's ready to deal out mercy to Absalom. And in this case, I'm not sure Absalom really deserves the mercy. But then again, who does deserve mercy? Um, but David's ready to forgive Absalom. And he, he says this all in the hearing of all the people. So this wasn't a secret meeting with his generals. This was out in the open. He's commanding this. And this, this comes back later because other people have heard this, that David says, hey, deal gently with Absalom. I don't want him killed. I want him spared. I want my son safe. Now, this may not be the most appropriate thing when you're fighting a war with somebody who's goal it is to try to kill you and eliminate you, that you're saying, I want him safe. There's, there's, a, there's a thing here where David's acting as a father, saying, I want my son spared. 
but he's also has an enemy who's acting wickedly and unrighteously and probably deserves death in a judicial sense. And David, as the rightful king, maybe shouldn't be acting this way. And we'll probably deal with this a little bit more next week, um, where Joab, even though Joab a lot of times acts very wickedly and unrighteously, makes a very good point to David about how David really should be acting. And we'll, and we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. So I'm just giving you a reason to come back next, or not next week, two weeks, because we're not going to have the Sunday school next week. At least this Sunday school next week. So in two weeks, we'll talk about that, why maybe David's acting a little bit too gently with Absalom in this situation. Uh, but anyways, he gives this command to his generals and says, please, please, please deal gently with Absalom. I don't want him hurt. Bring my son back to me. And so he gives this command. All of the people hear this. And then they go out to battle. So let's see what happens next, verses 6 through 8. Jonathan, go ahead. So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown, and there before the servants of David. <clears throat> and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. So the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured most people that day from the sword of So Absalom's forces lose to David's forces. So uh, David's forces go out against Absalom's forces, and this is interesting also. David didn't wait for Absalom. It seems that David took the battle to Absalom. Uh, And they go to a place, uh, uh, so David's the aggressor here. They go to a place called the Woods of Ephraim, and it seems like it's actually across the river, even though Ephraim seems to be on the uh, west side of the Jordan. The battle seems to take place on the east side, and this might be a place that's called that, um, later on, and whoever's writing knows of this place, it is using a term that's been named later to let the people know who are reading this at the time that this is the place it is. So it probably wasn't called that at the time, but it's called later. It'd be like us saying, like, when the settlers landed in, the, the uh, pilgrims landed in Massachusetts, they wouldn't have called it Massachusetts when they landed there, but we would identify it as Massachusetts now because we know that's where the place is. So that might be why they call it that now. Um, but it's, there's a dense forest there east of the Jordan River and north of the Jabbok River. I don't think... Oh, here's the River Jabbok. So it would be, it'd be up actually over in here. That's nice. They have the River Jabbok on there. Huh? You realize that was going to be on there. Perfect. So it's up in here. Um, and Israel fights this battle. And I, I call it Israel and David's forces. So Israel loses this battle badly. In fact, 20,000 Israelites die in this battle. And we think that... Obviously, Absalom's forces is going to be much larger because he's gathering from all of Israel to fight David. And David's forces just rout them. Um, and the commentator here says that more were lost in the woods than in the battle. And this is as they're fleeing and stuff. They're um, trying to run through this dense forest, and they're getting killed by the, by the stuff that's going on in the forest, by going through the woods and, and falling and getting... Uh, the hazards that are, as you run through the woods and the hazards that are in the woods, they're, they're getting lost and killed in the woods. And so this is just a bad route of the people of Israel. And we see later on that they, just, they, they give up on this battle after Absalom dies and they all go back to their homes because they're, they're tired of this. 
of David beating them. And David has this great victory here with his much smaller forces in this uh, terrible hostile terrain that, that's just not beneficial to the larger force. And David has this great victory. Maybe this is why David goes out and fights them because he knows he has this advantage in this hostile woods that uh, makes the size advantage uh, negligible, that he can go in there and uh, he uses the terrain to his advantage. Again, David's, David being a military strategist and being the smart guy maybe takes advantage of that. So um, Absalom's forces end up losing to David's forces very badly here. And um, so the, what happens to Absalom? Let's find out. Joanna. So number four here, Absalom is killed. So he's caught in a tree. He's riding on a mule, and his head was caught in a tree. And this could be either he's caught by his neck or he is caught by his hair. Remember, Absalom had uh, the hair issue where every year he'd get his hair cut and he'd lose like three pounds of hair, which we think maybe was an exaggeration, but he, he had a lot of hair. Uh, MacArthur favors the later that his hair got caught in the tree and then his mule rolled out, uh, rode out from under him, and so he was kind of hanging there. Um, one of David's soldiers spots him, and he goes running to Joab and says, hey, I just spotted Absalom hanging from a tree. And Joab wonders why you didn't kill him. You spot the enemy hanging from a tree. Why did you not kill him? And Joab says, not only, I would have rewarded you for that. I would have given you ten shekels of silver and, get this, I would have given you a belt too. The belt would have been enough for me, I don't know. Um, the man says, nope, that I wouldn't have done, not even if you had given me a thousand shekels of silver. So you know why? Because the king commanded you not to harm him. And it goes back to, you know, David commanded this in the hearing of all of them. This guy heard what David had said. And so the king said that. Not only that, but I, I heard the king say it. And you know what? My life would have been in peril because if I would have killed him, you would have turned on me. Basically, you would throw me under the bus is what he's saying, Right. You would have turned on me and said, oh, he's the one that did it. And I think maybe he, he knows the stories of, you know, the guy who came and reported, hey, I killed Saul. Oh, you killed Saul? 
Why do you raise your hand against the Lord's anointed? You're dead. Oh, I, I killed uh, Ishbosheth. Oh, you killed Ishbosheth? Oh, you shouldn't have done that. You're dead. This guy killed the king's son. Oh, you killed the king's son? Guess what? You're dead. So he, he, he realized how David reacts to these things, I bet. I, I think these, these are well-known things that happened. And so he's like, I'm not going to do that. I heard what the king said. I'm not going to put my life in, in that peril. So I'm not going to do that. And Joab's reaction, I can't linger with you. <laughs> Joab's just, I'm not, I'm not going to deal with you. So Joab takes it into his own hands. Joab's not scared of David. He's going to kill Absalom himself. So he, he finds Absalom, and Absalom's still alive. This is kind of why I, too, think that he's not hung by the neck because of how long are you going to be able to hang in the tree by the neck while Joab is conversing with this guy about uh, shekels and silver or belts that he's going to give away. So, so he, he sees Absalom hanging from the tree and strikes him, it says here, with three spears through the heart. That's probably going to kill him. And Joab, apparently with his boldness, um, his armor bearers, and he has ten of them, they, they see Joab's boldness and they want to get in on the axe. So they also join in and uh, strike Absalom down and kill him. And so Joab and his buddies take Absalom's life. And that's how Absalom dies. Joab. And, you know, if you were to write the story and you say, well, who's the guy who's the murderous guy who gets all bloody and does the deed, you'd pick out Joab. He's, he's, that's kind of his M.O. here. He likes to kill people, and Joab does it. So, not a surprise, Joab takes care of Absalom. Now, Joab was directly commanded to be gentle to Absalom and to spare his life. Joab ignores that and kills him. So, what does Joab do next? Let's find out. Who would like to read? Abigail. So I call this Absalom's Memorials. So Joab sounds a ceasefire. That's what I call it on the trumpet. He commands his forces to stop pursuing Israel. Why is that? Well, Absalom's the main enemy. He is dead. There's no reason to pursue the rest of Israel. David's going to become king of Israel again. You might as well spare the rest of the people. The rebellion's basically over. You, you cut out the head. Might as well save the rest of the people. They're all going to be under David very soon. So he calls a ceasefire. The people stop pursuing the rest of Israel. Then they bury Absalom. They put him in a large pit in the woods, and they place a large heap of stones over him. Now this sounds like, okay, well, that's nice. They built him a grave. Well, there might be some symbology to this. Because if you look at Deuteronomy 21, verses 20 and 21, it talks about a rebellious son. And what do you do with a rebellious son? You stone him. 
And so, by putting him in a pit and covering him in a large heap of stones, Joab might be thinking, this is the rebellious son. We killed him, but maybe symbolically we're going to stone him here. We're going to put him in a pit and we're going to cover him with stones to show that, hey, this is what he deserves as a rebellious son. So there might be some symbology in what Joab did here to show that Absalom is the rebellious son. Um, so Absalom's forces, they all flee back to their tents. This is the idea. They all went home. They're done with the war. Absalom's dead. There's no reason to fight David anymore, so they're all going home. And then it talks about Absalom erecting a pillar for himself. And uh, he erects a pillar in the king's valley. And it says because he had no son, so he needed something to memorialize himself. Um, he named it after himself, called, uh, and it remained at the time of the writing. Now, interestingly enough, there's a tower near Jerusalem called Absalom's Tower. It's there today. Um, it, I'm going to try to draw it. It's not huge, but it, it kind of looks a bit like this. It's a couple stories. There's like a door on it. There's a window here, and then there's like a window up here. And then behind it, there's a cave. And there's a, like a wall that goes along here. And the cave's kind of in the back. And the wall kind of comes out by the cave, but it, is, it looks like that. The cave is the cave of Jehoshaphat. Um, and the tower dates back to, they think about the first century BC, so it's probably not Absalom's actual monument, but they call it Absalom's Tower. And a couple of funny things about it is that uh, Orthodox Jews, uh, when they pass by it, they'll either spit on it or they'll throw rocks at it because it's Absalom's Tower, and they, they, they don't like it. Um, they also will bring their kids there and go, this is what happens to rebellious sons, is that they die, just like Absalom. So you don't want to be a rebellious son, do you? And so they'll, they'll take the lesson from the Bible and try to apply it to their kids and say, you know, you don't want to be a rebellious son like Absalom. So the, the tower is still there. Uh, this tower is there today. Uh, you can go see it if you want to, if you want to take a trip to Israel. Uh, very interesting, uh, but it's probably not the original Absalom's monument, but it, it's called Absalom's Tower. So it's kind of a side fact. So I found that very interesting. MacArthur mentioned it in his Bible. I'm like, I'm going to look that up, and sure enough, it's, you, can, you can find it if you Google it. So... Um, it is there. So, Absalom has this memorial for himself, and the author of the uh, Bible here talks about it in the story that it's still there at the time of the writing, Absalom's monument, they can find it. Uh, going on, Second Samuel 18, verses 19 through 23. Nathan, go ahead. Said to him, Run. 
that Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran Kushan. So Joab sends messengers to David. We have messengers? Messengers. And Joe didn't mean to send the messengers plural. He wanted to send one. Uh, Ahimaaz, the volunteers to take news to David. He volunteers to run. Let me run to David now. Ahimaaz is the son of Zadok. Who's Zadok? He's the priest. Yep, he's the high priest. And remember, uh, Ahimaaz was the son. He was the one who was running messages before in David's little spy network. He was bringing David news of what was going on in um, Absalom's court when Absalom was making plans. So he was the one who was bringing the news to David and letting him know what's going on. So he has experience bringing messages to David. He knows how this works. So he volunteers to run. He's also, because he was doing this, he's probably in pretty good shape too and used to running. Um, and he says, here's the message. I, let me bring the message that the Lord has avenged David of his enemies. Let me bring that message. Joab refuses him. He says, today's not your day. You're not going to bring the message today. You can bring a message another day. Um, and the reason you can't bring it today is because the king's son is dead. So, That's David's reasoning. Because the king's son is dead, you can't bring the message. Now, I'm not sure why why Joab thinks that this is a good reason he can't bring the message, but Joab decided to send this Cushite uh, instead. And he tells the Cushite, go tell the king what he saw. And the Cushite obeys. Now, it could be that, again... We have stories of David when Saul was dead, the messenger who brought the news that Saul was dead was killed. When Ishbosheth died, the messenger brought the messengers who said they killed Ishbosheth, they were killed by David. Maybe maybe Joab was trying to spare Ahimaaz and say, Well, if you bring the message that David's son is dead, he might kill you out of rage. Maybe Joab doesn't understand and thinks that this is gonna happen. So he's trying to spare him and says, Oh, this Cushite's expendable, we'll send him instead. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly his reasoning, but he, he doesn't want to send a Himaz to David. He wants to send the Cushite instead. So the Cushite obeys, and they, Joab's like, the Cushite's going to go. It's, it will send him. Um, a Himaz, after the Cushite leaves, begs, basically begs to go, send, send me anyway, send me along after him. He really wants to go and tell David the news. Um, Job asks, why? why? Why do you want to run? You don't have any news. The Cushite has the news. You don't have anything to add to this. Ahimaaz doesn't answer the question of why. He just says, let me run. And Joab, maybe, maybe it's like the, the, the unjust judge. Who, you know, he gets petitioned by this widow over and over again about, you know, plead, settle my case, settle my case. And the guy's like, finally, fine, I'm just going to do it so she stops bothering me. Maybe Joab is at this point. He was like, okay, just stop bothering me. Go already. You know, he finally says, okay, fine, run. Just go. Just go. So him as goes, and he's supposed to run behind the Cushite, right? Well, 
he's a good runner, so he passes up the Kushite. He's he's gets ahead of this Kushite guy. I don't know if the Kushite just not used to running or what it is, but him as he's the fast guy, he's he's past him. Now part of the theory is again they're going up through here, um, through the woods, and maybe the Kushite's taking the road, which may meander through, and him as knows the shortcut through the mountains and is running faster. Could be any of that, but he gets there first, so he outruns the Cushite. And he gets to David first. Let's see what he tells David. Chapter 18, verses 24 through 27. Who would like to read? Matthew, go ahead. Now David was So I got Himez outruns the Cushite and gets there first. And David's in the gate, um, sitting between the two gates. He's, he's waiting for somebody to come and tell him what's going on. Again, he was left behind. His troops went out without him. So he, just, he wants news of what happened. Um, and so the watchman goes up to, over the gate to, to get a bird's eye view, see what's going on, and he sees somebody coming. And he tells David there's somebody coming, and David states, if this guy's alone, he has news. Because you send a messenger and you send him alone, then he, just, he has something to say. He's not, you know, if they're fleeing from the battle, they're going to flee in a large number. If he's alone, he's just bringing news. And the watchman watches, and he goes, hey, there's somebody else coming behind him. And David realized that that guy probably also has news, too. There's probably two of them. One's bringing the first news, and one's bringing the second set of news. The watchman's watching, and he recognizes uh, Ahimaaz. And why does he recognize him? Well, this guy, again, was running information back and forth for David for a while already. So they know him. And David goes, I, I know this guy. He brings good news. He was on our side. He's, he's worked for us before. He's, he's my right-hand man when it comes to information. So he, I know he comes with good news. And so David's, David's ready for the best news. He's ready to hear the good things that have happened. And let's hear what Ahimez's news is. Verses eight, uh, 28 through 30. Lemuel. And Ahimez called out and said to him, All is well. Then he bowed down with his face to earth. Before the king, he said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. The king said, Is the young man not so unsafe? Ahimez answered, When Job sent the king's servant, meaning his servant, I saw a great So Ahimez gives an incomplete report.
He has come and he greets the king. All is well. This is kind of the thing, like, sometimes when I call people, um, my family and stuff, after not talking to them for a while, I say, oh, look, I'm, not, I'm calling, there's nothing wrong. Because I want them to know that I'm not calling because someone died or someone's in the hospital or something like that. You know, just, there's nothing wrong. I think this is kind of his way of saying, all's well, there's, there's no problem, there's no issue going on. You know, all's well. Just trying to reassure the king. Um, he prostrates himself before the king. This is what you do when you come before authority. Uh, before the king, you bow down before him. And he gives a greeting acknowledging God's blessing to David. Blessed be the Lord your God. He's delivered up the men who raised their hand against the Lord thy king. Basically he's saying you've won the battle. Battle's over, you've won. Your enemies are defeated. David, acting like a father instead of a king, the first question out of his mouth is, what's going on with my son? How's my son? Is my son okay? Again, he's, he's, he's thinking like a father at this point, not so much as a king, but as a father. And Ahimez, he knows what happened, because if you go back to when he's talking to Joab, remember, Joab says you can't go to David because David's son is dead. So he knows what happened. But he's going to feign ignorance in this point and say, well, when I left, there was a great tumult. But I don't know what it was about. Christian's coming, you can ask him. I, I don't know. Um, again, I, the, the commentator, I, I'm not sure exactly why he's not sharing here other than maybe, again, they're not sure how David's going to react to this. And um, the commentators are, don't seem to have a good answer here. And I've read several commentaries, and nobody wants to answer why he, he acts like this. And that, the only guess I can say is that David's emotional state and all he's been through, everybody seems to be kind of standing back and saying, I, I don't want to bring David the bad news. And... So he's, he's like, I don't know. And so David said, okay, stay on the side. There's another guy coming. We'll, we'll ask him. He's coming with more news. So Ahimeaz stands aside. Again, I, and this whole thing with him wanting to come, wanting to bring the news, and then not sharing the news. You know, he just wants to be there, I guess. And it, it, it's, it's, it's very strange to me. So... Um, but he's there. He's there with David. Now the Cushite comes, and the Cushite's going to bring some news. Who wants to read about the Cushite? Go ahead, Josiah. Just then, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, There is good news, my lord, the king. The Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. So the Cushite, he gives a more complete report. Now the Cushite, being a foreigner, I mean, he's not familiar with David, so he's not afraid of giving a report about what happened to his son here. But he greets the king, and he comes and says, there's good news, my lord and my king. 
And he kind of gives the same idea. The Lord has avenged you this day of all those who are against you. Basically the same idea that you've won the battle, your enemies are dead, rebellion's over, we've won. And the king, again, same question on his mind, what about my son? What happened to him? Is he okay? Is he safe? Can you give me news about my son? And the Cushite answers in a way, that, and a lot of people said this is kind of a cultural type answer of how you answer culturally. May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who risen against you to do you harm be like that young man. Now this is culturally saying he's dead. David gets the message right away. It says he was deeply moved. He basically isolates himself. He goes up into the tower. He weeps. He cries out. Absalom, my son, my son, if it were only me dead in your place, so my son, uh, he's grieving over the death of his son. He's again, he's, he's the father here grieving over his son. So um, and this goes on for a while, and we'll see this the next time we study in chapter 19. And um, we'll also see that Joab has some harsh words for David about this. Because there's a time for being a father and there's a time for being a king. And David forgets that he's a king for a while. And Job says, you need to start acting like a king at some point in time here. So, uh, we'll talk about that. So, let's look at some takeaways here. Uh, first of all, number one, when you are a leader, we talked about leadership today. It's interesting that in our morning message we talked about leadership. When you're a leader, you not always get to do what you would like to do. David wanted to lead the people in the battle, but that was not his place. He needed to fulfill his role as a leader, and in this case, hang back and protect himself so he can continue to lead his people. And as leaders, we need to accept our roles and responsibilities. I think this is a good lesson to learn, that you, you as a leader, sometimes you just say, you know, this is what God wants me to do, and I need to fulfill that. I need to be responsible. I need to do what God wants me to do. And as we, and you may say, I'm not a leader now. Well, I'm think that God may want to develop many of you into leaders at some point in time in your life, and it's a, a lesson to learn that, hey, I need to learn to do and be responsible for what God wants me to do. And so at times I may think, I want to sit around and do what I want to do. I may want to have fun. I may want to do leisurely things, but God may want you to do other things. And that's part of learning to be a leader is to learn, okay, I need to be responsible and do the task that God has given me. I need to be responsible and, and learn to say no to certain things so I can do the things that God wants me to do. And that's a leadership trait I think God develops in us. And David, that's, David wanted to lead in the battle. I want to go out and lead my people. And the people said, nope, that's not your role right now. Your role is to sit in the city and wait. And David had enough sense to say, okay, as a leader, I don't get to lead the battle this time. I get to sit back and let other people do that for me. And he, he needed to learn that. And this time, he needed to sit back. And there's other times for him to lead in battle, and there's this time where he didn't get to do that. And as a leader, you don't get to pick and choose. You need to do what God wants you to do in those cases. And so it's a good lesson for us to learn. Um, Second takeaway I got out of this is that uh, David was not in control of this situation. Uh, David wanted his son to stay alive and wanted to be able to bring him back into the fold and forgive him and make things right with his son. He wasn't in control. He wanted a certain result to happen, but it turns out it did not work out that way. 
Uh, we will see us continuing following pastors that David will need to learn to accept this result and trust God in this situation. And we are not in control, we are in control of very little in our lives, but we serve a God who is in complete control of all things. We need to learn to let go of the wheel and let God guide and direct our lives. For some people, it's very hard that they want to be in control of aspects of their lives. They want to have control of the situation, control of what's going on. And we don't often have control of things. We need to learn to trust God. We need to learn to do what's right. We need to learn to take the situation and say, okay, I'm going to respond to the situation in a godly way, in a way that's biblical, in a way that's right, in a way that pleases God, and realize that I don't have control of what's going on in this situation and trust God in that. And David wanted to have control and say, hey, you guys keep my son alive. And that didn't happen. And David, for a while, I think, reacts in a way that's not the right way here. And eventually, Joab's going to confront him and say, hey, you need to react in a better way. You need to do this instead. And David finally comes to accept that and realize that he didn't have control of the situation, that this worked out differently than what he wanted. And he needs to just respond the right way and trust God that this is what God wanted in the situation. And we need to look at our lives sometimes. And sometimes when we don't have control, instead of trusting God with it, we despair and we say, oh, I wish it would have done this. I wish this. I no, we don't wish that. We just we need to respond right, trust God, and do the right thing. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to, to look to him and depend on him and, and, and react biblically to the situations that he puts us in. And so those are kind of some thoughts I have based on this passage. Again, you know, what do you do with a passage where you have a battle and the king's son dies, you know. How do you take away from that? I think those are a couple lessons we can learn from this passage here. So any other thoughts or insights or questions or comments? Okay, good. You guys are very attentive today. I'm going to get you all just before noon. Awesome. Okay. Uh, Matt, would you close us in prayer? Thank you.